With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Just for Variety. I'm your host, Mark Malkin. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Neil Patrick Harris about his role in HBO Max's new limited series, It's a Sin, about a group of gay friends in London during the early days of the AIDS epidemic. Harris talks gay role models, shooting the fourth Matrix movie, and what he thinks of the upcoming reboot of Doogie Howser, MD. So stick around. I'll have Neil Patrick Harris coming up after the break. Welcome back to Just for Variety. I'm Mark Malkin. In It's a Sin from Queer as Folk creator Russell T. Davies, Neil Patrick Harris plays Henry Coltrane, an older gentleman who becomes a mentor and father figure to a young gay man just coming to terms with his sexuality. The series, which stars Ali Alexander as Richie, an aspiring actor who makes no apologies for his love of partying and having a lot of sex, pulls no punches in its depiction of the early days of the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. As Richie and his newfound friends relish in their newfound freedoms, away from families who rejected them or don't know they're gay, the shadow of AIDS slowly begins to disrupt their lives. Friends and lovers die, and AIDS activists are born. I spoke to Harris via Zoom from his Hamptons home in New York. Huge fan of the show, of the series. Um, It is. It's one of those things where I'm like, just when you think like, you've seen enough AIDS movies or AIDS, there's just this other um, area, other other part of the epidemic that we haven't seen and we see it and it's this cathartic. I mean, the crying that we did. Me too, me too. Like I had seen episode one, I was sent that, and then I hadn't seen the rest of them. So I was starting to do press for the product project and I was I was a little bit bummed because I had only seen a part of it and so after the first day of press and before this morning of the second day I got links to the rest of them and I was going to watch one or two because by the mm-hmm. time the kids down and it was Dave and myself and our friend Michael and and we watched episode two and then episode three and then we had to watch episode four and then you have to watch episode five it was like one o'clock in the morning by the time we finished we were all emotionally gutted <laughs> And I knew the actors, I knew the locations. I, I was able to remove myself emotionally and I was still invested so emotionally. So I, I can't, I, for everyone and their individual story with HIV AIDS of a generation where 
it has affected them, it must be a, an even more powerful uh, dynamic going on. So I, I am, I'm overwhelmed at its largeness. How did you get involved? Did they come to you with a script or how did that all happen? I got an email saying that Russell T Davies wanted to chat on the phone to maybe be in his next series. And I was, I think currently at the time watching years and years and was a huge queer as folk fan. Mom, not as much with the Doctor Who, just because I wasn't a Doctor Who fan from before, so I didn't really follow it. But I just think his storytelling is brilliant. And I love working in the UK. I, I can't, I have a real obsession. Yeah, borderline obsession with <laughs> all things UK. Immersive theater in UK with Punch Drunk, I think is stellar. The National Theater being subsidized by the government and and inexpensive as a ticket and producing such amazing things that Tate Modern, I just could go on and on. Um, so any chance I can get to go to the UK is great. So those two things just sort of fell in my lap. And I got on a phone call with Russell and his producing partner. He told me about the idea and that there was a character in it that he was interested in me playing. And I said, sure, I'd love to. And that was months and that was six months before I got a script. Wow. So, so it was early on in the process and then I thought it had gone away and then it uh, appeared again and it was happening in earnest and suddenly I was in Manchester and learning an accent and growing a mustache and <laughs> loving life. <laughs> Did you like growing the mustache? You know, I had grown a full on mustache, like 70s Magnum PI style for another project that uh, that stopped production in the middle of filming because they lost funds. So I had lived in mustache land for a while. And then this was a question of, it wasn't mustache ne necessary. Uh, mm -hmm. It just, I had a lot of stubble by the time I got there because I wasn't sure what they wanted. And looking for some kind of characterization, we thought maybe a mustache would be interesting. And then we thought if, if I shaved it down and made it as um, bespoke and as refined as the rest of his um, demeanor, that um, it would be uh, helpful. And it was. My husband likes when I grow a mustache and I just, my top lip just disappears. It just looks horrible. I, I want to see it. it. I want to see you in November. Oh no, I actually, I. I was going through this phase in, in uh, the pandemic where I was dyeing my hair different colors because my hair, my husband's a hair colorist. So we, start, we started playing with that. And then I was like, okay, I'll grow a mustache. And there's videos of me in interviews with mustache. I'm like, Mark, why did, why? <laughs> I, did I did gay pride parade with the family in NYC when I had the pull on mustache. And there was a whole year of pictures where I had this big walrus of a mustache. <laughs> Do you remember when you first learned about HIV AIDS? I don't remember it as a singular time where I had heard information, but I, I remember that I, I was living in New Mexico with my family and I would come in sporadically to Los Angeles and my agent at the time was a woman named Bo Shoot, um, B-O-O-H-S-C-H-U-T. And she since then became my manager for a while and she found me and she was a small agent in the Valley 
and not a small agent, but it was a, a small agency. Agency. It was just her and an assistant, and her assistant's name was David, and he was the loveliest man, uh, um, late mid to late twenties, probably. Then this was probably in nineteen. 87, 88, 89. And his partner was um, a man named Bob Harbin, who was the head of casting for CBS, weirdly. Um, CBS? ABC. Okay. And so all I knew from really gay men in my life was David and Bob. As, uh, and they would invite, David was just the loveliest, nicest guy. And they'd invite us over for dinners and my, my parents and myself would go and fish out a water style sit, see these two adorable, hilarious gay men being kind of weirdly like Henry <laughs> and his partner in, in the show now that I recollect it. But they had a big bulldog and they were just lovely examples of gay men. And I was not out. And to be honest, I don't even think I was sexual enough to be, be nervous about, around them. They were just lovely men. And then David started getting, like showing up at work less and less. And then all of a sudden there was another assistant who was kind of replacing him. And then he wasn't there. And and it was then when I was sat down by Bo and, and she sort of explained to me what was happening with him, that he was sick and um, that that's what it was. Uh, it was profound because at that time, it was still early on. There was, it was not, it was, it was still so loaded with a quiet, hushed discussion, a level of shame or concern that that made it that made me unable to really have a dialogue about it. it I was just given information and and processed it and that was it I never really got to say goodbye or know when the end was happening and then he had passed and Bob was very upset and he's you know, lived on to have a wonderful life uh, post David, but that was my, that was the closest I had, I had come. I was sort of grew up in the middle. I didn't grow up in Los Angeles, so I would go back to New Mexico. And, and so I didn't, I thankfully was in between. I didn't, I didn't have to sit through respite in hospitals of friends. And, um, since then I've, I've learned a lot and heard a lot and, um, been uh, a lot of stories have been shared with me from David Furnish and Elton from uh, the ensemble cast in Rent. So I've lived firsthand experience, but not in the trenches, as it were. So when when you get a role like this, when you get something like it's a sin, do, do you do more research in terms of prep? Or do you sort of just figure out what kind of man Henry was, whether it was during the 80s, or it's now? It's one of the things I enjoy about being an actor is that it allows me the opportunity to do research mm -hmm. um, that I otherwise wouldn't need to do. Right. That said, I didn't do a lot of research about HIV AIDS because my character's trajectory was one of 
kind of sudden confusion and then and never having a um, breadth of knowledge about it. In fact, his final scenes, he speaks with quiet confusion about what all of this might be. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to do undo research and then have it weirdly affect the, my performance. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, but that's not to say that just out of curiosity, I haven't done due diligence here. The thing that's amazing about the series is it does that great balance of it's entertaining. And there are moments where I'm just relishing Richie's life, the, the abandonment, the, you know, I'm just going to go for it. I'm just living, obviously not knowing that this epidemic is coming. And then it's just such a great remark, great, it's not the right word, but a, a reminder of what happened and what could still happen. Um, and it's this, you would think, oh, I don't want to watch something like this. This is going to be depressing. This is going to be about, you know, my community just dying. But it's something so cathartic about art like this. What is it? Is it just reliving it? Is it just seeing it through others' eyes? What, does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And I, and my answer would be Russell T. Davies. I think he has a real innate skill at writing about big picture issues in a very conversational way. In a, the doors are wide open for you to 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 jump in. Halfway through the first episode of this thing, you care about these kids. You want to see them grow up. You want you want them to experiment. You want them to dance and have fun. And that's all written. That's all written. It could be very cautionary and and. And, and medicinal and make it feel like you know what's coming. But at the end of the first episode, that great juxtaposition between my character Henry's situation and them all speaking directly into the camera about what they're looking forward to in the next year, in the next five years, what they wanna do when they grow up is, is very profound. I wanted them to succeed in their endeavors. And yet I had a feeling that given that I'm watching this on film, it's almost Russian roulette. Mm. You assume that at least one of them won't have the outcome that they're hoping for. And I think that makes great for very interesting and intriguing storytelling. And it always comes, for me, projects like this always comes down to the dancing. The dance, for me, anytime- What do you mean the dancing? The literal dancing in a scene? Literal dancing, literal dancing scenes, you know, Queer as folk, they had them all the time, and it was when you you felt that euphoria. Um, you know, longtime companion. I don't know if the last time you watched it, if you remember the last scene, and they're all coming back on the beach and they're just dancing. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've watched. Have you watched Veneno yet? No. There's a dancing scene in Veneno, and that gets me every time. It's the dancing. It's such a, you know, it's such a for. For gay men, it's the so many times the first time that we were allowed to be free. Mm. You know, because for, for me, when I was this little gay boy, I was so self-conscious about dancing, I wouldn't. Same. You know, so when I was finally allowed to, it was a freedom that I had never experienced before. I have the same relationship with dance. I, I grew up in small town New Mexico 
and my best friend uh, was a girl and I was like I was friendly with the boys but at dances I was so self-conscious and I would be the one sitting on the bleachers up judging other people as they danced right oh look at oh look at uh, <laughs> look at you <laughs> but at the same time I wanted to dance sure I wanted to and if one thing that I that I say now to my kids to anyone who will listen is that whenever you're at a wedding dance yeah. wedding dancing is my favorite because <laughs> you have all these demographics all together you have grandparents and yes. siblings and and people that you don't know and everyone's there to celebrate a, a cause you're not there just because it's saturday night and you're going out to get lucky no one's there to get lucky and you can just dance and 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 it's a it's it is a really great feeling as you get older it's easy to say with perspective that i wish i danced more yeah. but i really do wish i danced more i literally in my life i've gotten to dance a fair amount i've never right. taken a dance class but i've done like i've headed like in, in award shows, I've had to dance at the front of lines of professional dancers behind me. And it's one of the most nervous uh, feelings I, I still have is being in the dance rehearsal studio, feeling like a total fraud. <laughs> but when you do get to move your body and the energy that's created from it is beautiful. That said, it's really challenging to dance on camera. Mm. Because in order to record sound, they keep having to turn off the music so they can record the sound. So you're often you're often dancing <laughs> to no beat at all next to act, next to background actors who you've never met. And in a normal certain situation, there'd be loud music and you'd have been staring at them for a while. <laughs> so it, it does it does ask a lot for the kids to to be dancing. That said, these kids, these kids, these actors, they're far from kids had a, an ensemble alchemy that was very enviable. And every time I was able to be with them in a group, I relished it because it made me feel like I was part of their team. And, um, and it was just a joy to watch. There was, nothing, there was nothing inauthentic about how much they enjoyed their, each other's company. What is it like watching a man, I was gonna say kid, like Ali, who's, you know, he's out from day one. Yeah. What does that feel like as a gay man of a certain age who couldn't be out from day one? Oh, I'm, I love that. I would take objection to your couldn't be out from day one mm -hmm. supposition because I don't, that to me implies that there would have been some negative ramification. I don't know that that's the case. I think everyone has an individual path and an individual journey and fair point. And it and it and it's really up to the individual. I do think that almost everyone uniformly when when they are when they're able to not withhold information, they um, shine brighter. Yeah. And I think the keeping of secrets is a, a bearing of weight and that bear, that holding weight um, just weighs you down. And, and when that, when you're free from that weight, you are obviously able to stand taller. Yeah. So a younger generation though, this new, I think kids in their early twenties and younger, the gay straight spectrum is totally different. It seems that 
the labeling and the stigma is mm -hmm. just not there. I've, I've hung out with, I've had good conversations with people in their early 20s who are straight, but have fooled around with friends and it doesn't weigh heavily on them. It was fun, they had fun, and now they have a girlfriend and they are not even, they're not troubled by it. it. It doesn't define them. It is. It was just a fun afternoon or evening. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And so when I look at uh, Ollie, granted he came up from music and music's a different story now, which is an interesting thing to say because I think, I think when I was his age, it would have been much harder to come out in the music industry than as an actor, mm -hmm. right? Wasn't yeah. that that glass ceiling what seemed more difficult? I mean, for, for me, the only, you know, I was obsessed with Boy George. Obs right? Obsessed. And George Michael weighed, weighed heavily on him for years and years, right. right? Boy George and George Michael, for that matter, I still remember, the, I think it was the cover of People Magazine, Boy George, I'm by. Yeah, and that was a big deal. Yeah. So, but now music is, music is freedom <laughs> and, and Ollie rep his, you can't, I can't get past his smile. I mean, he's just a, he's just a bright, he's a shining beacon of, of pot of possibility. Yeah. And it was reined in incredibly well by, by Russell. Some of the things that he, he took my breath away in episode five. Mm -hmm post riots when they're all in the Jeep and he says, don't touch me because I'm bleeding. Like I audibly gasped at that turn from, it just was everything. <laughs> it wrapped up all everything that he felt and the way he said it with it still with kind of a plastered on smile of mm -hmm. fear and determination and grit and and shame. It was, it was very a very complicated moment that he executed brilliantly. Now I have to take a short break, but when I return, Harris talks about filming the fourth Matrix movie and what he thinks about the Doogie Howser reboot. I'll be right back. Welcome back to Just for Variety. Here's more of Neil Patrick Harris. So just to take a little turn here, Matrix 4. Yeah, man. So the other day I spoke to Yaha Abdul Mateen. Nice. Who said to me, there's only two people who actually understand the Matrix, Keanu and Lana. Do you understand what the Matrix is? I would never <laughs> even tr try. <laughs> I, I, I agree with what, with what he says. I mean, Yaya was in, a, in, his own, in his own way. We all had our own little tracks, but Lana is a very fluid, free, evolved um, creator mm -hmm. in the true sense of creator. Right. So words don't, words aren't as important to her sometimes. And sometimes they're very important mm -hmm. and physicalities are, are changeable. So, so, so we would do inconsequential scenes that would change a lot. So yes, I think I think the the Bible of the Matrix is certainly she she wrote the script, so it was it's 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 her it's in her brain. Um, but yes, we're all we're all just we're all just puppets. We play along with whatever it is. 
Did you watch the other movies before you went to shoot it? Of course. Like right before to sort of... Throughout. What are you thinking? Like, I'm going to be in the Matrix. Like, that is just... It's the Matrix. Like, my husband, it's literally his favorite franchise of all time. I wish I could say that my role allowed the appreciation of the largeness of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I can't, I'm not supposed to reveal too much about, the, about it all, but um, I did recognize that because Lana had done Sense8 for Netflix before, mm -hmm. and that was a small group of gypsy people that traveled around the world making this, and a lot of the same crew was part of the Matrix, it didn't feel large because mm -hmm. it, it felt she was, she was in her sweet spot, which was that which was filming on the fly, filming using natural light. So sometimes you'd be, sit around for an hour waiting for the clouds to clear and then you'd quickly film. You'd film pages at a time in, in 30 minutes and then be done because she has ideas and vision. So it always felt, it felt very spur of the moment and felt very uh, spontaneous, which I think is very unique for the scale of the movie. Right, right, right. You would think that a giant movie would be 100% storyboarded, <laughs> animatics, we're checking off shots. And I think she's lived that before three times over. And I would su suspect that, that she wants to do things her own way now. And it was so, so to answer your question, it was, it wasn't often that you felt that you were doing something gigantic because she made it feel very intimate. And I feel like the watching the movie will be a different experience than it was watching the first three mm -hmm. in, in, a, in, a, in a visual way. And now, could you believe life has come full circle, there's going to be another Doogie Hauser? <laughs> I heard that! <laughs> yes. How wild. <laughs> but I'm so happy. Yeah? Why is that? Well, I the creator of it was a was a producer on How I Met Your Mother. Mm -hmm. um, I think setting it at, with a female protagonist is a great call. I love Hawaii. And I think it, the notion of having it be set there is personal for, for her. And, um, and I just think it's in good hands. I, I'm a big, massive Disney Plus fan. Um, literally have been watching, we watched with the kids, um, WandaVision. So good. First three episodes are so weird, oh, great. So weird. And I want to know what's happening, and I have no idea. So I love it. The Imagineering story was like was my my happy place. So I think it's in really good hands. I did, it feels like it's it's going to be uh, uh, a, a passion project for many, and I can't wait to watch it. Has anyone approached you about sort of appearing in the background? You're in a hospital scene. <laughs> no. Would you? Um. My goodness, that's a tricky question to answer to you. Because if I say no, it sounds like I don't want to be involved with it and I'm and I'm passing judgment on it. If I say yes, it sounds like I'm trying to get a job. <laughs> so I, <laughs> it hasn't come my way. And I and I sincerely wish them wish them all great success. And then one last question for you. What's the worst audition you ever went on? I remember auditioning for Wolf, not for Wolverine, for um night. What was the part that Alan Cumming played in the 
in the Marvel movies? Night Hawk? Night Hawk? I don't even know. That's crawler, a Nightcrawler or something like that. Uh-huh. We're auditioning for a Marvel movie, and I was supposed to be that part that Alan Cumming got. And I remember auditioning and feeling just so this was very early on, and this was, I think, X-Men 2 or yeah. something, or the first one. So it's like, it's like, you know, I remember being in the audition room, like, on my haunches, and I was supposed to crawl, like, you're supposed to be part animal and crawling, and I just, I don't, I don't think I quite got it. <laughs> I clearly didn't quite get it, but, but I felt, I, I remember feeling insecure in my own skin at that time to be to be heroic and animalistic at the same time, which is a drag because now that I'm 47, that's one of the bucket list things I'm dying to do. Superhero? Well, I don't know about superhero, but big scale, uh, CG elements, like a, big, a large movie. Like it could be Chris Nolan large. Mm-hmm. It could be. Could be a uh, uh, PlayStation Five large, you know, but like some kind of big where you're doing wires. I love that stuff. And the little tennis balls. Tennis balls. Yeah, <laughs> looking at at other people's drawings of what it's going to look like and having to <laughs> having to to live in a world uh, of the future. I think would be fun. So we, I think we have to get you a superhero movie. Okay. Or series. I mean, Disney Plus is doing so many of the superhero series now. That's true, and we are huge Mandalorian fans. Are you? Oh, man, aren't you? I've tried. I've tried. What do you and mean? I, like you, you, you saw I tried, and I kind of walked away from it. So I have, I have to come back. It's a bonus that you get excited 10-year-old children watching it with you because... Gideon, as the scenes go on, he's like, "Oh, that's an F wing two shot. That was that was wasn't seen. I saw that in a in a Lego that I put together <laughs> three years ago. That houses these kind of robots. So it's very it's very exciting. So, but yeah, that that turned out to be a that, that turned out to be great. Yeah, I loved Wandavision. I didn't know what to expect, and once I watched, I was like, "This is." I still don't know what to expect. What is happening? And I won't read anything about it because I don't want to know. But I'm a position. I said, by the way, family, I don't want to know. Neil, this is great. It's good seeing you. You too, sir. Great series. And hopefully, next time we see each other, it is in person. Absolutely. Tell David I said hi. I will. Thank you so much, bud. Take care. That was Neil Patrick Harris. Now it's time to go inside the pages of the magazine and my column, Just for Variety. For this week's column, I spoke to Susanna Beer director of The Undoing, about her next project, The First Lady, a Showtime anthology series about the first ladies of the United States, starring Viola Davis as Michelle Obama and Michelle Pfeiffer as Betty Ford. I recently caught up with Vera in Atlanta, where she's prepping for the production. Turns out it was Sandra Bullock, star of her Netflix hit Bird Box, who introduced Vera to Viola Davis. So I got a text from Sandra Bullock, Mm-hmm. who was on set with Viola Davis and said, uh, hey, I'm here with Viola Davis. Would you like to talk to her? And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I've always, I mean, I've always admired Viola Davis. So, yes, please. <laughs> and, 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 
And I think that, I mean, they were like just kind of hanging around. And so, so I spoke to one and she said, yeah, we got this series and we want you to direct it. And, um, and that's just the way it's going to be. And I was like, uh, yeah. And she <laughs> said, by the way, it's, um, it's, you have to direct the whole thing. And it's like, uh, it's probably like it's nine or 10 episodes. And I was like, no, 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 no. And she said, yeah. And then I was like, <laughs> I kind of, kind of find myself kind of uh, not really capable of not obeying <laughs> while Ola Davis had spoken. That was the undoing director, Susanna Beer. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Just for Variety. Coming up next time, Robin Wright who makes her directorial debut with this stunning new drama, Land. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Malkin. Also, let me know what you think of the podcast, what you've read in my column, and what you'd like more of. Until next time, stay safe and be well. And please, keep wearing your masks. See you soon. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.